Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, we are continuing our series with James Jordan as we look at the life of Jacob and the life of Joseph. Here, he's going to be discussing dreams and vestments in the Joseph narrative. Before we jump in, we do want to remind you about our new audio project, the Theopolis Blogcast. This is audio recordings of our blog articles. You can find it by searching on any podcast app for Theopolis Blogcast. You can also find it there in the show notes alongside our YouTube channel and other social media handles. We really hope you enjoy it. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening to this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing dreams and vestments in the Joseph narrative. We're still looking at themes that introduce the Joseph story. And we talked about food last time. This time, I wanted to say a few words about dreams and the function of dreams in this story. Earlier in Genesis, we find that God speaks directly to the people that are either going to speak for him or whatever. He speaks directly to Adam and Eve, to Cain, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God appears to them. God's glory appears to them. It says in Acts that the God of the glory appeared to Abraham, and we figure probably the chariot appeared to him. God speaks to these people. He tells them things. Do this, do that. I'm promising you this. Look forward to this. But God speaks more indirectly to Joseph. We don't have any place where God appears to Joseph. God does not speak to Joseph face to face. He doesn't speak to him in visions of the night. He doesn't speak to him in dreams of the night. In Genesis 15, Abraham has some type of a vision during the night, which is while he's asleep. Nothing like that happens with Joseph. What happens with Joseph is that he gets these dreams. So they're a bit different even from a vision in the night. A vision in the night may take place while you're dreaming, but it's still some type of direct speech from God. But we don't even have that here. With Joseph, it's through dreams. And the emphasis in this passage, as we get down to the end of Genesis, and this is the change, as I say, all the earlier patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God speaks directly to, and then suddenly it stops here in this last and seventh section of Genesis. The emphasis in this story is on the spirit, and particularly in connection with this matter. In Genesis 41, verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? If your Bible has any other translation, it's an error. Spirit of God, if it was found anywhere else in the Bible, that's how it would be translated. But, of course, the assumption of the translators is that Pharaoh would not have said anything so directly evangelical, so we have to figure out a way to soften it up. But, no, he says, Spirit of God Because they knew who God was. They knew who the creator God was. And this is right after Joseph interprets dreams. The emphasis is on Joseph's figuring things out based on what God has spoken to prior generations. So this is much more like our situation. This foreshadows the completion of the Bible and how we live in the new creation. Joseph has access to what God has done in the past how God has spoken in the past, things God has said in the past, and based on that, 
when he gets these dreams, he can reason from the previous revelation and the new circumstances, he can reason out what God is saying. He knows that God has said that the people of God will be like the stars of the heaven and like the dust of the earth. He knows that. So when he sees stars bow down to him, he can know, and Jacob can know, that that refers to the Israelites. He knows that Abraham drove away the birds that came down to eat up the dead bodies of the animals. So when he sees birds eating the food out of the baskets on the head of the baker, he knows that refers to the curse of the covenant, because that's already known. God doesn't need to tell him directly. He has prior revelation. Now, when we get to these dreams, we'll try to exegete them as carefully as we can along those lines. But that's the emphasis here. It's not so much that God tells them new things, but that the Holy Spirit guides them to understand what's going on based on what God has said in the past. And I think that has something to do with the fact that these are dreams. We dream about things that are in the back of our mind. And so, for that reason, dreams reveal to us the things we're afraid of, the things that we hope for, things that we've forgotten about. You don't have to be Freudian or Jungian or anything like that to know this, because our minds don't think about everything all the time. And so sometimes you have a dream and you remember somebody, I had a dream last night that I got a call from a man that I haven't seen in 20 years. And he called and made contact with me, and we got together and had a talk. I don't know why I dreamed that. Probably doesn't mean a thing. And I woke up this morning, and I thought, what happened to me yesterday that made me think about this guy? Because something probably did. Something that I'm not even aware of touched off in my mind some memory about this particular person. So that went into all the garbage that your mind turns around on during the night while you dream. And really, that's... I think all it is, your mind is just kind of sifting through stuff that's lodged there in the physical side of your brain. I don't think they necessarily mean much of anything, except sometimes if you have a dream, you can look at it and say, you know, I think I dreamed that because I'm really afraid of this circumstance, or I'm really hoping for this, something that you're not really thinking about ordinarily. From time to time, dreams can do that. Well... Because that's the natural thing that dreams do, God can use dreams in a heightened way to do the same kind of thing. These dreams that we have here are not irrelevant to the consciousness of the people involved. Take Joseph. Joseph is honored by his father ever since he's been little as the crown prince because he's the son of the first wife, Rachel. And then he's given a special tunic. And he's put over his brothers, the younger brothers anyway. So, one night he dreams that he's in charge of everything. Well, that's perfectly understandable, isn't it? Now, God is working with that dream. Then you got this baker and this cupbearer. They're thrown into prison. They don't know if Pharaoh's going to kill them or not. They know that three days from now, Pharaoh's going to have a birthday. And so one night they dream that in three days, something's going to happen. Well, of course they would dream that. That's who they are. It makes sense that they would dream worrying about themselves and their jobs. 
because they're in prison. What else are they going to think about but worry about themselves and their jobs? Naturally, they dream about that. And knowing that Pharaoh's birthday is three days off and that something's going to have to happen by that time, it's no surprise they dream about that. And it's no surprise that Pharaoh dreams about managing the empire. He's in charge of all the grain. He's in charge of seeing to it that the people are fed. That's his job in a very large kind of a way as the supervisor of the nation because Egypt was kind of like one large corporation. And so the Pharaoh thinks about that. So naturally he dreams about it. And all God does is he takes these dreams and adds to them so that they become prophetically certain and not just manifestations of people's worries. Pharaoh's worried about things. He dreams about what might happen in the future with respect to the things that he's in charge of. Well, God moves with that. And that's no different from God using human language. God speaks to us in human language. If God wants to use dreams, he takes human dreams, the same kind of dreams we usually have, dreams that are related to the circumstances that we're in. So I think these are things we want to say about the dreams. First of all, that the lack of direct speech from God in this part of the Bible is because the Bible is finished, so to speak. And now we're in a new phase where the Spirit leads us to understand things based on what's already been said. And then the dreams that God is guiding people with that show something about them, but they're special dreams, but they're still dreams. They're not visions. They're not direct speech from God. Anybody want to make any comments or anything on just the theme of dreams? Obviously, when we read these stories, we'll say more about are you sure we have to claim on them? I sure would like to claim them. Well, I, I don't think we have to claim them, no. I think dreams are mostly just the garbage in your mind that your brain is turning over while you're asleep. But sometimes they show us things about ourselves, I think. But then I don't think you have to necessarily think that either. The dreams can show you false things about yourself. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But dreams are always related to what's in our head, for better or worse. And you can see that in these stories. That's the basic point I wanted to make. These dreams are related to what's already in the head of these people, and God is working with that. He's not working in some strange and bizarre way. And also, at least partly what we're thinking about when we go to sleep has something to do with some of our dreams. There are certain standard dreams that everybody has that are easy to understand. The one everybody always talks about is that you find yourself in a public place and you're not fully dressed. Obviously, that goes back to Genesis 3, and that's why everybody dreams that. Everybody's afraid of their nakedness being exposed, and that's in the human consciousness. But if you have that dream on some particular night, it may relate to something that happened the day before, or it may not. See, I don't think we can analyze our dreams and get much out of it, except very, very general things. Well, that's interesting, but as I say, my main point was to show that God is working with these dreams. God works with everything. He works with dreams. He works with nightmares. He sends these nightmares to Pharaoh to shake him up. And... It's interesting to think about 
I think the whole book of the Song of Solomon is a dream. The woman is asleep three or four times and says, don't wake her up. And that's why you have this flow of things going on in the book that's just continually changing. It's kind of like what dreams are like. A person turns into a building, turns into the entire land. I think that if the book was analyzed somehow as a dream, and maybe in the future when we know more about dreams and how they work, we'll be able to understand that book better. But at any rate, so much for dreams. Another theme, the food theme, the dream theme, investiture theme, is really important here at the end of Genesis. We have three instances of it, of course. Joseph is given a robe, actually a tunic, so I'll probably have to correct this language at some point. He's given a tunic by his father, that's stripped off by his brothers. Joseph is given a robe by Potiphar, a garment of some sort. Let's see, what does it say? Garment is what it says here. It's probably the word tunic again. By Potiphar, it's stripped off by Potiphar's wife. And then Joseph is given this robe of office by Pharaoh, and nobody takes that off of it. So the third investiture is the charm. Now, investiture means for somebody to put a vestment on you. When we get dressed in the morning, we dress ourselves. But if you were sworn into office as a judge and they put a robe on you, you're being invested. We don't see that very often in our society. Of course, ministers used to be. When you were ordained as a minister, they put the robe on you, and that's what you wore when you conducted service. But in America, most Protestants don't wear robes, so you don't have that symbolism. We have to get it back in our mind because we don't see it on a routine basis. What does a robe mean? It represents office and rule in some capacity. That's not what your underwear means. Clothes mean different things. What our undergarments mean is we have something on to protect us from cold and soak up sweat and to make us feel comfortable. Our outer garments, the way everyone in this room is dressed today, the clothes you have on are not signs of office and authority, except in a very slight degree, but rather they're designed to make you look pretty. There's a glory aspect to it. And that's why we don't all just dress in brown sacks. If all we were doing was covering up our nakedness, it wouldn't matter whether our clothes were pretty or not. But clothes also had to do with glory. But in addition, clothes have to do with our roles and offices in life. That's why nurses and doctors wear uniforms. That's why if you go to a filling station, sometimes they all have a shirt and has a patch on it. It's a uniform, and beyond being a uniform... Certain kinds of garments speak of rule and authority. The kinds of garments that speak of rule and authority are always loose and, well, they're always robes of some sort, and there's a reason for that. If you're in charge, you're not the one doing the work, and so you wear a toga. It's easiest to understand with a toga. A toga is a large sheet a Roman senator or aristocrat, patrician, would wear this toga. They'd just wrap it around themselves, and it hung very loose. Remember, it would hang over one arm, and they could walk around in their toga. Well, what can you do when you have a toga on? You can't do anything. Can you weed the garden with the toga? Not very easily. You'd have to gather it all up and pull it up here and get down. No, you can't do that. Can you cook with a toga on? Well, no, this sleeve's going to get all in the way of everything. 
Can you fight with a toga on? No, you can't do anything. Plus, a toga is white. And it's very easy to get something white dirty, so you're not going to do anything. Wearing a toga is a sign that you're in complete rest and that you're in charge and you have slaves to do everything for you. The slave prepares the meal. The slave digs in the garden. The slave goes out and fights, or the soldier goes out and fights, and he's under you. Whatever. You don't have to do any work, because you are in charge. That's what a toga means. That's why if you're a senator or a patrician, and you're in Rome, and you're at rest, and you're going to the meeting, you wear your toga. Now, if the city is being invested, there's no use of the word invest. If they're surrounded by an army, is garbed with an army, invested by foreign troops, well, you take your toga off and put on your uniform. There, you're dressed completely different. Your legs are loose. You've got armor that's just hanging down from your waist down to about your knees. But you've got to be able to run. And you've got real heavy-duty sandals on for your feet. You've got your short Roman sword here. It's not going to be in the way so that you can run through the city. You've got some armor up here. That's a different kind of dress so that you can fight. But a robe, especially one that's expensive and decorated or white, says that you're at rest. And it says that in some sense or other, you're a king and you have authority. And obviously there are degrees of that. The toga is the most extreme example I know of. Because of the way it's draped on, you can't do much of anything. And that's the whole point. You're at rest. And the white robe of the pastor in the church and of the angels in Revelation has to do with that. The Mediterranean garment of rest did not work because it's white. You're not going to wear something white if you're going to go out and work because it will get soiled. They didn't have washing machines back then. They didn't have a lot of clothes back then. You wanted to be very careful to keep your white clothes white. So you use them rarely. That's the kind of garments that are here. Joseph is given a special tunic. Comes over his shoulders and hangs down to his knees. But it's specially sewn, put together. It says, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. He was the son of his old age. He made him a full-length tunic. We'll have to look at the translations there. When we get to it, 37.3, he made him one. I don't know that that means Jacob sat and sewed the thing himself, or if he had one of the thousands of servants around who was an expert to make it. But he had it made and gave it to him and put him in charge of some things. And, of course, it's right after receiving that that Joseph gets this dream that, hey, I'm in charge of things. It has something to do with rest. He's given a sign of authority. So these particular kinds of garments not only have to do with glory, which has to do with authority, also has to do with rest, has to do with being in charge. Now, this is a theme in Genesis, of course. It's important back in the story of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, where Ham seeks to steal Noah's robe. Maybe we can just remember that story. I'll read part of it to you from Genesis chapter 8. Verse 20, Noah began to be a farmer and planted a vineyard. Noah is now like God. God plants the Garden of Eden, now Noah plants. He drank of the wine and became drunk. 
the way this translation has it. It doesn't necessarily have to mean anything more than that he became sleepy, the wine affected him. He uncovered himself inside his tent. Though he didn't do anything disgraceful, he went into his private room and took his garment off, his outer garment, the one that has something to do with his office, as we'll see. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Well, how did he see it? He must have broken into the tent to take a look around. He had no business going in there. His father was still covered by the tent, but Ham goes and looks in. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Now that's obviously a ritual symbolic act. You wouldn't need to do that. If they said, gee, daddy might get cold in there without any clothes on, they could go in and throw something over it. But they put this garment on their two shoulders, one on each shoulder, and they walked backwards with their faces turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Putting it on their shoulders means it's a sign of the father's office and they're upholding his office. They walk backwards and lay it over him. They are obviously upholding something that Ham is seeking to tear down. Then Noah awakes from his wine and he pronounces these prophetic judgments and blessings. Well, formally speaking, this is like the original Garden of Eden story. God plants the garden, God leaves the garden. God comes back to the garden and Adam and Eve have sinned. Noah plants the garden. Noah leaves his vineyard, so to speak. He withdraws from the brothers. He comes back and they've sinned and he passes judgment. And even here, God speaks to the serpent first in Genesis 3 and curses him. And Noah speaks this curse on Canaan when he passes his judgment. Well, the point is the importance of this garment in Genesis. It covers up nakedness, and that's here, but it's also a sign of authority. Whatever Ham was seeking to do, whatever the sin of Ham is, is the reverse of the righteousness of Shem and Japheth. So you get commentators who say, well, Ham had a homosexual attack on his father, or Ham was doing this, or Ham was doing that. No, it's not a hint of anything like that here. They say that because over in Leviticus, Exposing nakedness takes on these sexual connotations, but it doesn't have this here. All he did was went out and told his brothers that his father was uncovered. Now, I think that has to do with trying to seize the robe of authority. It's basically saying Noah's old and drunk and he can't handle it anymore, so let's take over. And Noah comes back to life. He shows that he's still in charge. And he curses Ham's grandson to be a slave. The curse of Canaan to be a slave indicates that what Ham was trying to do was to get rule. And the, the judgments have to do with the crime. So the garment has to do with rule and authority. Noah takes it off. Ham uses that as an opportunity to try to grab it. The others put it back on their father, understanding that he is simply taking it off because he was hot. And he was in his tent. There was no invitation there for somebody else to seize the robe. Well, that's part of what this robe is. And the fact that stripping the robe off of somebody is to strip them of his authority and position, of course, is very much what's involved in the Joseph story.
the brothers tear Joseph's robe off because it represents his authority over them. Similarly, Potiphar's wife pulls his robe off. She has something else in mind, but it represents his authority, and that's why he won't take it off, because the authority was given him by Potiphar. And having had it removed means his protection and his authority are removed, and of course he is cast into prison. So we'll look at that when we get to it, but we're just kind of getting the investment theme here. Of course, we wear clothes because God does. God is robed in rainbow glory. And Adam's nakedness as an image of God implies that he too is to grow to have a robe of mature office. We said before, Adam was naked because he was a baby. Not because people are supposed to be naked. If God is robed in glory and Adam is an image of God, then they will have glorious robes too when they are mature and ready for it. Little babies don't mind being naked. They like being naked. They like to run around naked. You and I don't. And it's not just because we have original sin and we're conscious of our sin. It's also because we're adults. Now, garments and robes are bestowed and not seized. Investiture comes from the Father from above. A dimension of Adam's sin is that he was seizing the robe and not waiting for it. And that's because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has to do with maturity and kingship. That's why God said, temporarily you're not supposed to eat of it. Eventually you'll get to eat of it, but not now. Why? Because you're not old enough to eat of it yet. When you are mature enough, you'll get to have it. And so putting things together, we can see that Adam would have received robes of authority in connection with being invited to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he would become a king, he would receive glorious garments. When he seizes the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it's equivalent to seizing the robe. That's why Ham, in his attempt to seize the robe, is parallel to Adam's seizing the forbidden fruit. Ham wasn't ready to be given the robe of authority. Adam wasn't ready to be made a king by coming to the knowledge of good and evil, by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of kingship. Adam tries to put his own garments on with fig leaves. Well, there you are. Make yourself a king. Make yourself a god. Eat the fruit on your own timetable. And making yourself a god is to put your own clothes on. So we do it every day. Well, not if they're symbolic clothes. But if you decided... Oh, I think I'll be the pastor of a church and I'll just start wearing clerical garb and make myself a pastor. Ordain myself. Start wearing a robe. Well, that would be fig leaves. You decided, I think that I will make myself a civil magistrate. These people out here are committing crimes. So I'm going to take a gun and enforce the law myself. I think I'll just put on a policeman's uniform and go out here and start enforcing the law without anybody putting it on you. Well, that's making your own fig leaves. Making yourself into an authority instead of waiting for it. So when Adam repents, when Adam accepts the offer of the gospel, God gives him garments, and Adam accepts the garments from God. They don't amount to much, but they are bestowed. See, what happens in Genesis 3 
God says to the woman, well, he says to the serpent, that the seed of the woman will come and save the world. And then God says to Adam, you are going to die. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And then in verse 20, and this is where Adam accepts the gospel, the man called his wife's name Life, Eve, Chava, which means life. He called his wife's name Life because she was the mother of all living. Well, what does that mean? Well, God has said, she is going to give birth to a Messiah. You're going to die. So, by saying, I accept that through the woman will come the Messiah, she is the mother of life, new life, life that will replace the death that we have now brought. That's his acceptance of the gospel. So at that point, God gives them garments of skin and clothes them. Well, he invests them with some authority. They've already eaten of the tree, so they're going to have to exercise this authority. It's not the ideal way to become an adult, but you are one now, so you're going to have to do it. This is a temporary replacement, however. say replacement here. These are not the ultimate kinds of garments that you want. It's not a robe of authority. It's just a bunch of hairy skins, caveman style. It's a replacement for Adam's original skin. If you look at the sacrificial system for flesh, let's see if we can use that word. We'll put this word flesh up here. Now here you have the human body with all of its bones. Uh, Pelvic bone here and then bones here rib bones here, and around the outside of those bones is skin, flesh. We'll just make it symbolic here. Symbolic skin and flesh all around these bones. So that's what's around. Well, that flesh has to come off, and you got to get new flesh. The skin has to come off, and you got to get new skin, because the flesh is defiled. You gotta get rid of the old flesh and get new flesh. Well, how does this happen? In the sacrificial system, the way it happens is, when the animal is sacrificed, its skin is completely taken off. And then the animal is put into fire, and the fire provides new skin for the animal. Because the new skin is glory. And the fire is the glory fire. Being put into the fire is not a sign of judgment, but of glorification. Judgment is when the animal's killed with a knife. Going into God's fire is the fire of the Holy Spirit. Having that fire around you is glorification. That's why when God shows up, he's surrounded with fire and, and light and glory. When Elijah goes up to heaven, he's in a fiery chariot. Now there's fire all around him. That's glory. So the old skin comes off, and you get new skin when you go into the fire. Now, Adam's fig leaves have to come off. And God gives him garments of skin, which come from these animals. You could say a whole lot about that. But, of course, one aspect is the animal dies to provide these skins, and that begins to show us a picture of the way in which salvation will come into the world. Also, animal skins don't amount to much. They're just the very beginning. They're not very glorious but at least there's something. Now, 
Joseph's robes speak of his ascension to Sabbath rule. His first robe is stripped off and he dies, but he gets a new robe from Potiphar. Coming back to this robe theme, got big garment theme. And by the way, when it says Lord God made garments of skin, that's the word tunic. He makes the same garment as Joseph gets. This word tunic occurs here and at the end of Genesis. So there's a direct verbal tie between the two. God makes tunics. Israel makes a tunic for Joseph and puts it on him. And that's a sign of his authority. But it's pulled off and he dies. He gets a new robe from Potiphar. His second robe is pulled off and he dies. And he gets a new robe from Pharaoh. Both of these are death experiences. Being dumped down into a pit is death. Being dumped in prison is death. He gets a new robe from Pharaoh. And as a matter of fact, in both cases, there's a threat of death first. The brothers want to kill Joseph. And then they put him in a pit. Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape, which was a capital crime. You can be sure if a servant raped a master's wife. But he's thrown in prison instead. So in both cases, he almost died. And symbolically, he did go into death. Then he comes out and gets a new and better robe each time. Gets a better robe from Potiphar. In Potiphar's house, he has much more authority than he ever had in Jacob's house. And then, when he loses that, the robe he gets from Pharaoh gives him a whole lot more authority than he ever had in Potiphar's. His third robe is kept during his life. But we can see that robe stripped off in Exodus chapter 1. We move out of Genesis with its nice, neat ending into the next book. We see that the people are also undergoing death again. They no longer have any authority. If these robes have to do with authority, the people don't have it. And one of the things that happens at the end of Genesis, after the brothers come to Egypt, Joseph gives all these garments to Benjamin, five garments, honoring him as king. And then Joseph and his brothers become important. They all become important in Pharaoh's administration. So it's not just Joseph, but the Jews. A lot of these Jewish men become involved in the Egyptian civil service working for Pharaoh. Well, when you get to Exodus 1, all of these Jews have had their robes taken off, and they've all been reduced to slavery. So the same thing is happening again. The authority is being removed. They're going into death. There's this threat to kill all the boy babies Obviously, we are going all the way down into death, both symbolically and really, slavery being another aspect of death, but killing all these boy babies being part of it as well. And then when they are resurrected, what happens? Well, we're given new robes by Yahweh, which are the priestly garments. And they're described in great detail. And long ago, we looked at that in Exodus 28 and in Exodus 39, Long descriptions of these garments of glory and beauty, which God gives. So you've got a progression here that we could just very quickly look at. Maybe this will help lodge it in your mind. God gives skins. Skins don't amount to much to Adam and Eve. Then we have Jacob. This is where the theme gets picked up again and starts being worked. He gives a tunic to Joseph which gives them some authority, but it's not going to be all that great. But we're going to get a lot more from Potiphar. He gives 
a garment. I think it's tunic again. I'm going to have to look it up. To Joseph. And that's a lot more authority. But then we get really, really glorious robes from Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, how are they described? Yes, you see, he gives him the golden necklace around his neck. That's the sign of being the sun. This thing around your neck that makes your whole face shine as the sun. Like you got to remember you're in Egypt, which is kind of like down here. The sun is coming down all the time. The sun is coming down on all this gold and reflecting back into your face to make your face shine. It's like having a mirror around your neck so that the light is shining back up into your face so that you shine. Clothe him with garments of fine linen. Oh, the best. And puts the gold necklace around his neck. And had him ride in the number two chariot. So now we're getting much more glorious robes here and we're moving from Jacob, who is a priest, to Potiphar, who is a soldier, to Pharaoh, who is king and emperor. And each time we lose these, we get a better one. And when we lose them here, then it's Yahweh who gives these glory robes to Israel. They don't all get to wear them, but giving them to Aaron means giving them to Israel. And so... This is the climax of it here. We get the most glorious robes here when God himself gives you robes. But there's this progression from Jacob to Potiphar, who's in charge of the palace, to Pharaoh, who's in charge of the entire world, to God, who's in charge of everything. Everything there is to be in charge of is giving the robes, and each one is progressively more glorious. So if that helps you remember what's going on here, That's the theme. As we mature, God gives us more authority and more glory, but maturing is through these death and resurrection experiences, and they're not fun. It's not fun to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. It's not fun to be falsely charged and go into prison. It's not fun to be reduced to slavery and have to make bricks without straw. But what comes out the other end is better each time. And maturity means, I don't think it ever gets easy, maturity means understanding this and being willing to die for things because you know something better is on the other side. Every time it happens, it's terrible, and you don't want to do it. But that's the way God grows us up. Joseph doesn't volunteer for these things, but they happen to him. And when they do, he accepts them and is then readied by God for the next and more glorious set of responsibilities that he's given. Well, finally, I say here, the removal of Jesus' robe is the end of all temporary elevations to kingship and rule. See, each one of these is temporary. Even the garments that were given to Aaron, I mean, the kingdom falls apart. They have to make new ones. Jesus Robe is pulled off. There's a lot of attention paid to that robe, that it was seamless. The world casts slots for it. Jesus' seamless robe is his authority. It represents the world. Garments around you represent the people that you're in charge of. We look at this in Revelation. And so that's also part of the meaning of these robes. The people that you are in charge of are represented by the robe you wear. They are around you. And everyone is taken away from Jesus. 
on the cross, so his robe is taken off. And the world wants to take charge, and so the world takes charge of his robe. But then Jesus gets a final robe from the Father, and that's not going to be taken off. There isn't going to be any brothers or any adulterous wife or any evil king or anybody else who can ever take those off. They are permanent. And since we are in union with Jesus as his younger brothers and as his bride, we also have robes for us. Well, that's the two things we can do today. Dreams and garments. And next time we'll start looking at the theme of kingship because talking about robes, gets us talking about what it means to be a king. And kingship is a major, very major subtext in this story. And, of course, it relates to the robes. Before we get the law, we get a king. We have anarchy. The first solution to anarchy is a king. The second solution is the law. And there's a reason for that. And Joseph is the functioning king in this story. And the king has to redeem and then give the law. So... We'll start looking at that next time. But that's the robe. So be alert to the robe theme here in the Joseph narrative. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.